Hey everybody, come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 117 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. In this episode, we have an absolutely fascinating interview with veteran mine executive Margaret Kent. If you were in the industry here in Canada in the early 90s, you would remember her as Peggy Whitty. She was uh, really one of the most well-known CEOs in Canada, a very iconic figure, the first woman mine executive, a major company. Uh, she was the CEO of Royal Oak Mines, which was, was a sprawling gold company across Canada, which famously went bankrupt in the mid-1990s. Margaret, she contacted us just before the PDAC, and we, she sat down for an extensive, wide-ranging interview. Even if you know, you think you know Peggy's history, uh, she's done so many different things in her life, uh, involved in so many projects, and as she herself will say, she's had the highs and the lows. She's, you know, has been a very controversial figure over the years with problems up in the um, Yellowknife area and then, of course, the bankruptcy itself of Royal Oak. But uh, she's been involved in much more than that. And in this interview, she doesn't shy away from any of the difficult questions and has frank opinions on everything and regrets as well. And it's completely fascinating. And yet at the same time, she has that classic drive and is quite active today with this uh, Stratabound Minerals up in the Yukon. So just sit back, and before we get into it, I just want to acknowledge our podcast sponsors. We have the Grosso Group out of Vancouver, led by entrepreneur Joe Grosso. You can find information about the group at grossogroup.com, and they have three publicly traded companies, all active in Argentina. Golden Arrow Resources, involved in precious metals, Blue Sky Uranium, with uranium, and Argentina Lithium and Energy, involved in uh, lithium exploration up in the Lithium Triangle of the country's northwest there. Our second sponsor is the Yukon Mining Alliance. They have a terrific website where they gather all kinds of news about the Yukon uh, mineral scene at yukonminingalliance.ca. They have a terrific Twitter feed at at investyukon. Margaret Kent's Stratabound Minerals, they don't have a uh, resource to find at their property yet, so they're not part of the Yukon Mining Alliance yet. They have to prove up a resource first. It's one of the criteria. But uh, Margaret does rave about the Yukon as a place to work, so uh, in the second half of this episode, uh, she'll talk about that. Before we get into the interview, I just want to make a few show notes. The interview was carried out by Trish Saywell, our senior staff writer here in Toronto, and it was uh, sort of on the sidelines of the PDAC conference here in Toronto, Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, in early March. And this was before we were even doing the podcast out of our Toronto office. Trish recorded this as um, on her kind of cheap uh, old microphone to uh, just as notes for her own written article. And what happened was it was just such riveting material. This is, you know, you listen to something, oh, this is pure gold, you know. It's one thing to transcribe an interview 
when the person is very eloquent. But this uh, it really benefits from her telling her own story of this uh, remarkable career with its ups and downs. It took quite a bit of tricks to re- restore the audio, but it, it sounds pretty good. In some ways, it's not a typical show, and some of Trisha's own questions are actually deleted just to keep the flow of uh, Peggy's responses in one go. In this first episode, Peggy talks about maybe some of the bigger picture wisdom that she's learned um, from the ups and downs of her career. You know, she finds it quite amusing to go through the uh, hallways of the PDAC and seeing so many of her own projects uh, that she was involved with 20, 30 years ago, you know, with the name change, new company behind them. In the second half of the episode, she'll talk about her own Stratabound Minerals company. So we'll come back after this break with the interview by Trish Saywell with Margaret Kent. being able to 
have the interest out there in promoting, you know, more exploration. Then I went from doing more of the junior stuff to bigger stuff, controversial stuff, the striking Yellowknife, giant Yellowknife mines, and owning all those properties, you know, up there, uh, Crestorum, giant Yellowknife, you know, and then on to Pamor. Basically, I had control through Royal Oak of the whole Pamor belt, the Holnor, the, the Hoyle Pond, I mean, it just goes, you know, Nighthawk, well, what we call Nighthawk Lake, which was a new project that we put into production. And all the headaches of running mines, you know, 2,000 employees, five operating gold mines, three labor unions, spanning the country from Hopebrook on the East Coast all the way up to Kalamak and the Northwest Territories. I think that probably put more gray hair on me than anything. I had to buy more bottles of hair dye during that time. And then, of course, you know, fighting with the B.C. government over Windy Craggy, you know, because, I mean, we were the owners of Windy Craggy when they declared it a, a World Heritage Site, and then cutting that deal with the NDP government, and then putting that money into into Chemis and then building the you know, $450 million Chemis project and raising all that money on Wall Street and uh, Bay Street. And then kind of taking a breather for a while, you know, when the industry took a breather and then... That was in 91? That would have been in 99. Sorry, 99. In 99, remember the price of gold was 250 an ounce and the price of copper was 50 cents. And, and we were running a big gold copper mine with, you know, $200 million of debt on our balance sheet and just wasn't working. Which mine are you referring to? I'm referring to Chemis. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it was being the wrong place at the wrong time, right? I mean, uh, having to file a company through an insolvency process, which gave me a whole different perspective on life. I was no longer, I, I, was, I was no longer a naive, mining professional, like I see a lot of them still are out there. I had borrowed big money. We had, the company had, the board approved it. We had borrowed big money for a big project and, you know, right at the verge of getting the project into production. Murphy worked against us and we had a big hiccup with a tailings dam crack and had to shut down and then I had to go raise more money and the people we raised the money from, it was a loan to own, and, and they ended up with it, and, you know, my world kind of came crashing down, and, and you, but you have operations in your blood, and once you've had operations in your blood, it's hard to go back to what I would call the exploration stage, you know, so took a breather for a few years, and then started Century, and then Century, because now I knew how to wield myself in and out of the insolvency courts in Canada, was able to buy the Lamac line out of the insolvency courts from McWaters, from that insolvency, and went there and restarted the Sigma, and, and then went underground at Lamac, and then sold off the controlling interest to the Russians, and, and uh, to the Russian group, and at that point in time, moved over to try to build another mine, and that was Pine Point. And of course, uh, Pine Point has its problems with its water issues, etc. But again, had borrowed money, which I should have learned better than 
to take another proposal to a board to borrow money, and we borrowed money thinking we could get it into production. And that's when zinc prices were a dollar fifty a pound, and everything was going to be absolutely great. And all the Japanese were standing there lined up to take the zinc, and then the zinc price fell down below a dollar, and we're sitting there with debt on our books. And again, um, at that point in time, the lender filed us in to insolvency proceedings. And Pine Point then, you know, of course went off to Darnley Bay. Darnley Bay changed its name to Pine Point, and now Cisco's got it. And guess what? You know, they're going to put $50 million and they expect to double the resource. And, you know, again, kind of being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think is what happens is as you get older, you realize that there are metal cycles. Everybody's in euphoria at the top of the metal cycle. But at the top of a metal cycle isn't the time to finance a project or to put a project into production. But unfortunately, it is not. It is not. Why? Because that cycle is going to turn. So when you look at the lead time of getting a project into production, and I, let me just focus on Canada. By the time you've got your permits and everything else, you've, you've now gone through another metal cycle. And if you're starting up when that metal cycle's at the bottom, uh, it, uh, it becomes disastrous. And it's only the people that, you know, buy in at those times and ride the metal cycle back up that make the big, make the big money. Or as Norm Keevil Sr. once told me, he said, Peggy, you got to have projects that will survive four or five metal cycles and deep, deep pockets. And that's how you, that's how you survive in production in this industry. But how else could you have done it without borrowing money from the banks? Well, you couldn't really. You could sit there and let's let's take, you know, let's take Sigma Lamac as an example. A lot of people go in and they just continue to explore and explore and explore. I mean, look at what happened after the Russians bought into Sigma Lamac and then they shut Lamac down, and then they it wasn't me, but they took Lamac and filed it into a proceeding and, and Deloitte being the receiver sold it off to Integra and Integra says hell I'm not going to restart this mine I'm going to explore and what did they do they explored and they explored and they combined the two properties together and they continued to explore and then they sold it off to somebody with deeper pockets that could afford a hiccup if a bank loan went bad my issues always were that I was, whether it be Colomac or whether it be Chemis, we couldn't really survive the situation if something went wrong, if there was a hiccup. And I think that that's probably, you know, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned. And so now, being the age that I am, and having seen, I mean, I just, sometimes I get a chuckle. You know, I look at IDM and I say, it's Red Mountain. I used to own Red Mountain. You know, there's Nighthawk. Oh, that's Colomac. I used to own Colomac. There's, um, you know, something else in Ontario. Oh, that used to be, you know, the old Hallnor mine or the McIntyre or, you know, all of these projects. And they've all just been renamed. And I'm just saying to myself at this age, maybe maybe production isn't where it's at. Maybe, maybe you know, sometimes uh, there's less stress in doing exploration. So when my... Former chief mine geologist Kim Tyler came to me 
And he says, Peggy says, I've got an absolutely spectacular exploration play in the Yukon. I said, exploration? I haven't done exploration for 35 years. You know, I've been in production. I've been doing production things. He tells me, Peggy, you got to look at this. you got to look at this. And so when I gave it a lot of thought, and I had, a, I had acquired, basically, with a group of people, control of Stratabound, which was a Stan Stricker. He grew it for years and years and years. And we went out, and we were trying to buy production, and we went to people like Nearstar, and we were looking at buying their mines, and we were going to do more production. And when Kim came to me, Kim Tyler, and he said, look at this exploration, and I'm sitting there and I'm saying, hmm, I've got all these shares in this corporation, and the stock is five or six cents, and if I can get this stock to a dollar, a dollar and a half, and get a major to come in and take me out, I've had a lot less headaches, and probably made as much, or with a lot less headaches, and made as much money than I could make by going out and buying an operating mine and sitting there and struggling and taking on debt, having to pay bankers back and hoping things go well and hoping that you can merge it and make a bigger company. And so that's where we are today. So I'm now the chairman of Stratabound and I realize that, you know, I can't I can't be the road warrior that I used to be two weeks a month on the road, I can't be the road warrior I was, and so then you've got to surround yourself with a really, really seasoned group of senior exec, you know, of executives got a lot of experience, but you got to hire some road warriors, too, that are going to go out and pound the pavement and sell the stock. But, uh, but I think is what it's taught me over the last 40 years is certainly how to recognize a winner, and how to be in the right area at the right time um, with a winner. Perhaps not be too much of a contrarian. Uh, I think when I was younger, I was very feisty. And I think that, you know, I wanted to be the contrarian. I wanted to be the woman that was out there that was um, fighting the labor unions, um, doing what needed to be done in order to make a name for myself and make a name for my company. and. And, you know, with that came, I think, a lot of fame and a lot of prestige. Um, what was it, 1991 Mining Man of the Year, I mean, Woman of the Year, Chatelaine Woman of the Year, uh, one of the top 50 women in IBM's magazine, um, all of those things. But did it really, I think, make me as much money? as I could have probably made in a lot of the grassroots exploration plays had I been able to, to pull those off. I've realized that now, and I think that, uh, you know, that's why I've slipped back into more of an exploration mode and retracing some of my steps and some of the old properties and seeing if there's other things out there that would have more exploration potential. So the, the mistake was production, production, production. The mistake was production, production. And not having the deep enough pockets, okay, or somebody standing, you know, behind you as a controlling shareholder. I mean, for instance, uh, you know, for instance with Pine Point, if we had been able to do the deal that we had been working on extensively with Mitsui, 
and they had been standing there with us, things wouldn't have gone the way they went. We could have just weathered it. We could have, you know, raised a few million dollars, gone out, done some more exploration while the, while the zinc price was down, you know, drilled our brains out, come out of the chute when the zinc price started to go back up. Uh, but on the other hand, Trish, the, what I learned by going through some of the insolvency work, I mean, look at I saved the caribou mine two hours before it was going to be dismantled. Had I not had the insolvency experience that I had to understand what was going to happen when Blue Note went into receivership and to sit and to wait and to finally cut a deal with the receiver and to walk in and stop the auction. I mean, look at Trevally and then, and then package it back up and sell it off to Trevally. You know, when you're sitting there with a three, four, five hundred million dollar milling structure and it's going to be piecemealed off piece by piece and you start to look at the, you know, my geos start to look at the underground and say, this isn't, this doesn't look so bad. We're just at the wrong pricing at the wrong time. You know, so all that insolvency experience gave me a great deal of knowledge about metal cycles, about what happens. Again, Blue Note didn't have deep enough pockets. What happens? Every one of these. They're just not deep enough pockets to survive, and I, I walk the I walk out there now, in the in the aisles, and I see these young companies that have put something into production, and they're struggling. You know, even look at company like Poor Monera IRL, and they were a Peruvian company, very very successful with what they did, and they borrowed money and to put an operation into production that didn't go right, and. and you know, now they're on the now they're on the verge of of having serious serious insolvency problems, and there's probably somewhere between five and ten of them out there right now. But do I say is that an opportunity for me mm, at this age with my team? This is where the opportunity is. Exploration, exploration, exploration. Because there's been no money put into exploration for years, and so there's still, you know, over the last few years. And so there's still some real positive things out there. And, you know, it's really, really nice sitting in that booth here and talking exploration to the old timers that did come up, you know, and, and uh, uh, who are our mainstay, really our bread and butter of our industry, not the banks and the hedge funds and the private equity firms and the metal streaming companies and all those people that are making money off the backs of executives that are working their fingers to the bone. It's, uh, it's, the exp it's, the, it's the hardcore investors in this business that made the mining business what it is, that made PDAC what it is, actually. But those investors are leaving. Those investors are leaving. They're, they're getting being old. replaced by strategic private placements. That's right. And private equity is big. And Chinese are coming in, and they're taking big private placements in companies. And, I mean, we were approached yesterday by three Chinese companies. And, they, you know, oh, well, you know, we want to take a, a strategic investment, 40% of your equity right now. And I said, we don't even have a project. I mean, we've got a project. We've got a beautiful exploration project. But, but it's way too early. It's way too early. So what happens? I take a strategic investor now at $0.07 cents a share, and they own me. There's not, it's, it's, you know, we're not going to be able to do what we need to do in order to exploit the property. 
But, so what's uh, your plan for this? Our plan for this is um, we will do two or three seasons of work. Um, it's beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful situations I've seen uh, because it sits close to the Nahani Range Road. Uh, uh, there's infrastructure. The old Kantung mine is 20 kilometers away. We've got beautiful surface showings. We've got 30 kilometers. We've got three kilometers of significant gold geochem on the surface. It's almost like a hemlo. It's almost like you know finding a hemlo. Plus, we're sitting very, very close in the same strategic area as Golden Predator. And look at Golden Predator's success over the last couple of years. And I think the whole Highland Belt here us and Golden Predator, and maybe there's a couple of other smaller projects in this belt, will probably get advanced for the next couple of years and get packaged up, and some major will come in and probably take out the whole, take out the whole belt when we've all got nice 43101 resources. So, and how are you funding it to that point? We're funding it through private placements. We funded the company to date through kind of friends and family, and then through junior or investors that invest in very junior plays, usually through individual brokers and trying to stay away from any of the bigger, you know, corporate finance side, uh, trying to stay away at this point from brokered deals versus the old-fashioned non-brokered deals. But by next year, we'll end up having to do a bigger brokered deal for 8 or $10 million, $20 million in order to put the serious money in. But, you know, it's like Golden Predator. They didn't have to do any serious broker deals until just recently. And they were kind of free to go in and explore and do what they do what they needed to do. Plus, we've chosen the Yukon because 20 years ago, 30 years ago, my business partner, Ross Burns, and I were traipsing through the Yukon saying there had to be a load source of all this plaster gold. And I think there were many, many people and many majors that believed in that. It's just that how could you convince a major to carve out millions of dollars out of their expiration budget to go look for the load gold in the Yukon? All right, and now it's all starting to be found. And that and was thanks to Sean Ryan, probably. That was thanks to Sean Ryan, but it's also been some thanks to the Yukon government right because they've been so supportive they've gone and and they've procured money for the road upgrades and i mean you know the northwest territories is just starting to you know take a page out of their book out of the yukon book but i mean when you think about the beautiful beautiful projects that i've helicoptered in in the northwest territories you know, like the Tom and the Jason and Isaac Lake and all these places. And I mean, the only thing that's stopping a project like Isaac Lake is infrastructure, road. How do you get the con? And there are base metal and you produce concentrates. How do you get the concentrates out? You know, it was one thing for me to run a gold mine on the coast of Newfoundland with a roll-in, roll-out boat where I could fly the gold out in an airplane. But when you're producing 50,000 tons a year of copper con or zinc con or something like that, I mean, infrastructure is the name of the game. You've either got to be able to get it out or the technology has got to grow enough to be able to put these little smelters in that are being used in Australia. 
Or I think one of the big saviors for our industry is going to be these air balloons. And uh, we've looked a lot at those. My team has, and my uh, past business partner, Ross Burns, who passed away a couple of years ago, and I, we were studying air balloons 10 years ago when we were looking at all of Canada's north. And it's now just coming, I mean, you know, Lockheed's got them fairly well protected. You've got people that are forming corporations. It looks like the first ones are going to be stationed in the Northwest Territories fairly soon. And it's going to be mostly for shuttling supplies in and out of the First Nations villages, and, you know, that can only operate off of winter roads. But we've got major changes coming to Canada's north. I mean, look at, there's, you know, we used to have three months of winter road back when I was running Colomac. Now we're lucky to have four weeks, five weeks of winter road. Yeah. And so something's got to change. So either the the federal government with an, the two territories have got to let loose some money and put some infrastructure in, or something like air balloons or some other way of transportation is going to have to take over. Exactly. I should. I, I think I did a piece on air balloons back about a, ten years ago. Yeah. Okay. But I yeah. should obviously look at it again. I think you should look at air balloons again. I mean, and you should really look at what's happening. Yeah. We looked at it extensively, yeah. and I think that, if I'm not mistaken, the first six or seven air balloons have already been purchased by the company, Jeez. and I think that the company is going to have them stationed in the Northwest Territories probably within the next year. And I, even though it's not going to be cost-effective, I don't think, for the mining companies as of yet, because they're still building bigger and bigger air balloons that have larger payloads, it's certainly going to change the way of doing business yeah. in the north, and especially for the poor villagers mm -hmm. that have only had, you know, windows to bring in all the fuel. I mean, when I think of Colomac having to bring in 13 million gallons of P40 diesel fuel over a winter road. I mean, I could fly food in and stuff like that and parts and stuff, but grinding balls and P40 fuel and everything over those winter roads in order to operate those op those mines. Mm -hmm. I mean, life is going to change here. But, you know, for those of us that are the age, kind of the age that we are, we kind of sit back and we chuckle and we say, you know, it's about time that some of this has happened. We've been a bit of a backward industry for a while, but now technology's starting to... Mm -hmm in for us and you know hopefully we'll be able to do some of these things but you know like for instance with Stratabound with the and, and Golden Culvert you get to the point where you kind of have this little table of check boxes mm -hmm. all right and you say okay is it going to be sexy enough to promote is it in the right metal is it going to be relatively inexpensive exploration meaning not helicopter supported Am I close to a road and infrastructure? Who's in the area? Am I going to be able to get a workforce? Am I going to be able to have a community, Watson Lake, close by to support this? Is the jurisdiction favorable? And I mean, when Kim brought this to me, and I was able to check every box, you know, two kilometers off the main road, uh, you know, uh, never been explored before, huge outcrops of gold veins with gold in the wall rock, uh, um, you know, 
know, half a million dollars brought up enough uh, geochem samples to show that it's big, it's large, the structure is large. I just said to myself, wow, I've checked off all these boxes and, you know, I don't, I don't need to convince somebody that the mining law is going to change in Ecuador. I don't need to convince somebody that the Yukon government's going to put the road in, okay? I don't need to convince somebody that air balloons are going to be where it's at five years from now. Because all I have to do is go out there and take a drill. And two good holes is worth $15 million of market cap. Okay, $20 million of market cap. And when management and our significant shareholders own 65% of the outstanding stock of Stratabound, it's huge leverage for my people. It's huge. And as a chairman, and Kim Tyler is my CEO, realize that that's what it's all about. As you make money for your shareholders, they'll come back. They'll support you. And maybe when I'm 75, they'll still be supporting me. <laughs> How did Kim find it? And what, were other people interested in it? Well, Kim actually was working for, I believe it was Dundee. And he was doing a big consulting assignment for Dundee looking for projects. And they wanted advanced projects. And he probably looked at a thousand projects across the world, and a lot of them in North America. And he came across this project and he fell in love with it. Of course, it was way too early for Dundee. It was, uh, it was too early, but he just kept it in the back of his head, in the back of his head. And I mean, he was really, really surprised. I mean, he, he got to know the prospectors in the area. And the prospectors actually tried to sell it to Golden Predator. And Golden Predator being, you know, having their own successes and their own package of land and their own successes said, well, you know, it's just, you know, more exploration in the area, but they didn't want to pay anything for it. But when come to find out, they really didn't examine it. They didn't get on the ground. They didn't start to take a look at it, or they should have probably picked it up. And when was that that they turned it down? Um, it would have been last year, okay. just so, last year. And so, and so you guys bought it off the prospect? No, is what happened is um, a couple guys out of Sudbury uh, called South Shore, a little bit of a partnership um, with some ex-mining guys that worked in the mining industry for a long while, joined a partnership, put a partnership together, and they went and they started looking around Canada for projects and they bought it off of the prospectors. They did the deal with the prospectors, and of course, we did a stock deal with them. All right, and uh, uh, so. so how, many, how much do they own of you? Uh, they own. It's probably in there somewhere. Yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to look that up, but it's like uh, 15, 18% of us. Did you have to pay cash as well, or? We're paying, we're making the cash payments over five years to the prospectors. To earn in? To earn 100%. So we earn 100%. And then the prospectors have got a 2% royalty carry. And the people at South Shore have a half percent carry royalty. And what's, so you said insiders own more than 50%? Insiders own 65% so of the company. So you're not worried about a take out of five cents or something? No, no, no. No, is what we're, is, is what the name of the game is for us now is, is to keep the dilution down. So do a lot of raises, a lot of small raises. We're in the middle of a $400,000 hard raise, hard dollar raise right now. And maybe a $500,000 flow through and then we'll get part of the way through the summer and then we'll do some more flow through. 
you know, and we've been able to announce some successes. And it's kind of basically play the, play the exploration game, take care of our existing shareholders, take care of the 65% of the shareholders that have hung in. Management's got 20% of the company. We've got ourselves positioned right, and uh, we've got the stock fairly cleaned up and tight at this point in time. So any successes should, we should be doing really well. Okay, since I'm a journalist, I can ask you some tough questions. How sure. much money of your own is in this? Um, oh, boy. Because I took private placements down to keep the company alive. So it's probably a quarter of a million dollars of my own cash. And it was mostly monies that were put in to do due diligence, to keep Stratabound alive, to get the merger done between... We did a merger with Stratabound because we were trading as a non-public, well, we were trading over-the-counter in the United States as Silverstream, looking for projects. And then when Stan decided, Stan Stricker decided he wanted to retire from Stratabound, we'd known the Shell a long time. I mean, he had a really good reputation. The Shell had been around for 30 years. And so uh, we approached him and said, can we have your Shell? Okay, <laughs> and so then it took, I put up a bunch of money in order to get all the work done to get the, the merger done there, and then um, the money to, um, all the money and the time. I don't take any salary. Um, my CFO doesn't take any salary. My CEO's not taking any salary now, so I mean, we've been working now for a while, and, and uh, we just keep putting in more cash and more cash to keep it alive. And, but now we're out, we're raising, you know, we're raising money, we have a treasury, the treasury's going to go into the ground, you know, you have to have some hard dollars in order to, to uh, you know, pay your listing fees, etc., but then, you know, thank God for Canadian flow-through. That brings to an end part one of our interview with Peggy Kent, chairman of Stratabound Minerals. Now, this interview was recorded during the PDAC in uh, the first or second week of March uh, 2018. And since that time, uh, I just want to give you an update on what's happened there. So Stratabound itself, it was focused on base metals in the Bathurst camp of New Brunswick for many years and almost became a shell company. So uh, Margaret Kent and her uh, associate just redirected the focus of the company to the gold scene in the Yukon. And they have the Golden Culvert gold-silver property. Now that's up in the uh, northeast, right on the border there with the uh, NWT. And it is northeast and parallel to Golden Predators 3 Aces gold property. Since that recording in April... Stratabound carried out a private placement of $300,000, and then a few weeks later, they closed a private placement non-brokered for $1 million, so that's enough money for the summer work uh, in mid-2018. Uh, so they built a two-kilometer road, they did some channel sampling, trenching, and the results have just started to come out with uh, showing good good results with the trenching, you know, one, two grams gold over several meters. They were drilling to 180-meter depth, finding sulfides, not so much uh, gold, but uh, so encouraging results, and they're extending the drilling a little bit. So a good start for the first field season at that property. 
in part two of the interview, which will come up in episode 118. Peggy is going to talk about you know her early days starting out as a um, consultant in Toronto. She was a millionaire in her early 20s, or, or late 20s, I should say, and sort of the buildup of Royal Oak Mines, including the Windy Craggy controversial episode, her involvement with Briex briefly, and her partnership with Ross Burns, uh, who passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, they were lifelong business partners. So look for that. I'll edit that and turn it around fairly quickly. So we're going to close out August with this uh, interview with uh, Peggy Whitty, Peggy Kent, Margaret Kent, in uh, three parts to finish out August. Bye for now.